Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's happening in the labor market and why does it matter? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, July 7, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Peter Bookvart, CIO of Bleakley Financial Group and editor of The Book Report. Peter, it's always great to have you with us, especially great to have you with us today. Lots of data, lots of information coming out on labor markets in the last 24 hours. We've got JOLTS, we've got uh, ADP, and today, of course, we have NFP Day. Help us cut through all the noise to the signal. Peter, what's going on? Well, it's interesting because we, we were sort of thrown around, so to speak, by uh, the economic data with ADP telling us that almost 500,000 jobs were created and then uh, sort of a reality check with the BLS. Now, I think there's one lesson we've learned is that uh, you can't really uh, draw a, a connection to ADP and BLS in any particular month, but over a six to 12 month time frame those numbers numbers should converge. And interestingly, ADP in a way was really just playing catch up uh, after lagging BLS for, for many months. So year, year to date, the, the two uh, surveys aren't that far off on an average monthly basis. Uh, I think with the BLS number, uh, there was the possibility of a higher number just based on ADP, but uh, not only was it weaker than expected, there was also downward revisions and interestingly, the all-encompassing unemployment rate uh, did tick up to the highest level we've seen in a bit, uh, which is worth noting. Uh, I, I'm of the belief that while the pace of firings has been ticking up um, based on what we've seen in jobless claims, uh, I think there's no doubt that what precedes that is a slowdown in hiring. And obviously, depending on what industry you're in right now, uh, we, we are seeing some moderation, I believe, in hiring. Gabrielle, let's take a look at those charts, if we could, uh, to actually walk through what Peter is saying here so you can actually visualize it on your screen if you're watching. Uh, this is the non-farm payrolls monthly change number, obviously out today, for June of 2023. You can see that moderation in effect. You can see the rate of increase decreasing, uh, and you can see the number of absolute additions decreasing uh, as you look at this chart right now. Uh, so pretty clear data there when you look on the screen, pretty clean, nice pattern. Also, I want to take a look at the unemployment rate. This is a longer term picture. This dates back to 1970 on this chart. Uh, what you can see there, well, it's pretty obvious what you can see if you're looking at this on a screen. You see that enormous spike for the COVID pandemic, and then you see the decline, uh, obviously now below historical levels. Uh, Peter, how would you explain this? How would you contextualize this to someone trying to get their heads around it? Well, well, if you can, uh, Gabrielle, put that chart back up because you know, there's this belief that how can we how can we have a recession with the unemployment rate so low? But look at the chart. Look at where the unemployment rate has been going back to 1970, right before the shaded uh, columns. Right. It's low right before you enter a, a, a recession, and we should say we should say for folks who don't know, uh, shaded columns represent recession on this chart. So what you're looking at is precisely your point this idea uh, that the unemployment rate is lowest right before those gray bars, right before recession begins. Right, and, and this is the U3 measure of unemployment. When I mentioned before, sort of the all-encompassing U6, which has been ticking up to almost 7%, that includes 
workers that are not looking for a job, but would take one if offered, and a part-time worker who wants a full-time job. Um, now, the interesting and um, sort of different thing about this economy right now is there, there's sort of things are moving in, in slow motion with a lot of these cross currents. And you know, there has been a, a simplistic view of, okay, the Fed's going to raise rates, we're going to go immediately into recession. And obviously, we haven't seen that for different reasons. But I also think that the flow of fiscal government spending has helped to sort of distort, cushion uh, some of the negative impact from the rise in interest rates and making this somewhat of a, a bizarre cocktail of, 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 of analysis and, and economic reaction to everything being thrown at it. Well, we've got that chart on screen right now, the U6 chart. Uh, obviously, this is the alternative measure of labor underutilization, exactly as you said, a broader measure of unemployment. Uh, Peter, that's a pretty uh, stark uh, sort of decline, obviously, over a period uh, where we've seen that change. Explain what we're seeing there. Well, if you're a technician and didn't know what the what the name of the chart was, you can say we're, we're hit, reaching a bottom and, and curling up. So, like I said, this is the, the, the sort of all-in measure of, of the unemployment rate. And uh, I think that this is something that is, is, is worth watching uh, going forward, particularly after uh, the recent uh, uptick in jobless claims, uh, where we had three weeks in a row north of 260. We had some come down uh, related to the Juneteenth holiday and then uh, 240-ish print uh, this week. Uh, but it's something to keep our, our eye on. And you know, the thing about this sort of debate, recession, no recession, hard landing, no landing, uh, soft landing, whatever, uh, like I said, things are happening sort of slow motion, but that shouldn't distract you from trying to focus on the trajectory of economic activity and sort of try to predict that how is an economy going to power ahead in a world of much higher interest rates than what we we're used to over the last 15 years. And I think that that is really an important thing here. Uh, because I've been referring to this higher interest rate environment that could last for a period of time as more of a silent killer to mm. economic activity rather than something you're going to read about in the front page of the, of the Wall Street Journal every single day. And that behind the scenes, sort of, that everyone is getting affected. Well, I shouldn't say everyone. Somebody is getting affected by this higher rate world every day. Whether you're a household whose adjustable rate mortgage just expired and called yet a seven-year arm or a 10-year arm with a, a three-handle on it, now all of a sudden uh, your mortgage banker is telling you it's you're going to have to pay 7%, uh, or you're a business that has a, a loan coming due, or uh, someone has a, a loan reset that needs to be refinanced. Uh, that, that, that is is what I think chips away at economic activity. Uh, I read in, on Bloomberg News yesterday about Ashford Hospitality, who is defaulting on almost a billion dollars of mortgages on a hotel portfolio they have. So that, that's an example of, of that, that you're not reading about, as I said, in the front page of the newspaper, but this stuff's happening every day behind the scenes because somebody has a loan coming due. Now on the flip side, we know that there's been a huge amount of, of government spending. We have the, the CHIPS program right now, the 
There's still money left over from the American Rescue Plan that a lot of states are spending a lot of money, $350 billion worth. You have, of course, uh, also the, um, uh, the, the subsidies for green energy investment. So there's a lot of that going on too that is also creating sort of distortions in the data, but is, is, is creating a, a lift to economic activity. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday who said that right now we're on the cusp of or in the planning process for 16 battery, EV battery plants in the country. And each one's going to cost three to $4 billion. And of course it's subsidized by the government, but each facility is going to take, call it 18 months to build. You need workers to build it. And then once it's done, you're going to need probably four to 5,000 people to staff it. So that's what I think is sort of complicated, um, trying to figure out what's going on in the economy. And, and to my point earlier is that when you see a rise in interest rates, not everyone is affected all at the same time. Right. You know, if the Fed started raising rates in March of 2022, well, if my arm doesn't expire until December 2023, well, I've been good so far. But, you know, a train is coming in my direction. And same with a business that not everyone is affected, has debt coming due all in the same day. So uh, I think the most important point, I'll stop and pass it back to you, is it's not just, okay, when is the Fed going to stop raising interest rates? It's because we're, we're pretty much done anyway, even if they throw in another one. It's how high and how long, or I should say, how long will interest rates stay this high, uh, to me is much more of a relevant thing to be thinking about right now. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. Here, that's all so well said and exactly, I think, what people need to understand to cut through the, the sort of daily uh, coverage of what's happening in the news cycle that day, the data release of the day, giving us the big picture. So important, particularly at a time like this, a time of transition uh, in terms of rate regime. Uh, you mentioned this idea of a secular environment where rates remain higher for longer. Let's talk a little bit about what's coming up next week, which is CPI and the expectation of whether or not we're going to get one, maybe two more rate hikes before we see rate cuts. This is kind of the weird, bizarre period we're in. Uh, we've seen the twos, tens curve upside down uh, yesterday by 100 basis points. It's come in a little bit today with this number. Talk a little bit about that environment, how you think about what's going to happen next and the sequence of those events. So this TPI and then uh, the end of the month, PCE will sort of be the last two big numbers that the Fed gets to digest. And the PCE is, is less influential on the market because we've already seen CPI. Uh, we're definitely going to see, <coughs> excuse me, a, uh, a, a notable step down in the headline figure to about 3% from 4 while core still re will remain somewhat sticky. Uh, but, but inflation is going to continue to moderate uh, in the back half of this year, uh, both because of the, the deceleration in services inflation, because uh, it will recapture uh, what's really going on in the rental market, where rents are, you include new leases and the rollover existing ones, rents are only growing about 3% right now, maybe 4 while the CPI is still calculating 8% type rent growth. I think the question is, and, and that'll be enough, I think, for the Fed to stop after the next one as we get this further deceleration. But a further deceleration in inflation 
doesn't sort of um, create, it's okay, it's party time, and maybe we get a two-handle inflation by uh, the back half of the year. Um, it's, it's where inflation actually settles out. And we have the inflation spike, now we're having the come down. It's, it's where does, after that come down, where does it bounce to? Is it just going to go to two and we're going to be one to 2% inflation and, and you know, we'll be back to the salad days of, of, of pre-COVID or is something structural have changed and uh, three to 4% is going to be sort of the new norm for a while. And, and I'm in that camp. And it is that sort of inflationary backdrop, albeit much lower than it was, but higher than it, than it, than it, than it was uh, for the many years pre-COVID. Uh, that leads to stickier interest rates. And while the Fed may cut interest rates in response to uh, a, a recession or an economic slowdown and rise in the unemployment rate, you know, the days of going back to zero, uh, it's, there's no chance that happens for a long time uh, because right. of that stickier inflation. And I think it, it's, it's that dynamic is that the Fed is not going to be there to save you like it has in previous down cycles. And I, and I think that's one of the... Um, pieces of, of what is a much different uh, macro landscape than, than we've become accustomed to. When we talk about different macro landscapes, one of the most durable charts right now in finance and economics is taking a look at the 10-year treasury drift down 40 years, essentially my entire life, uh, when you look at that chart, declining to where we got to zero and now beginning to roll over and go back up. This is a really long-term cycle. Yes, and I, I still... And, and, and I still think people think that we, we haven't left the old one and that, that what we've seen over the past uh, year and a half is just uh, a temporary blip. And it, it's not a blip. There, there's a, a sea change that has occurred. And right. I, I don't think people are uh, appreciating that. And, you know, I get it in a way because people are so trained on, okay, you, you reach a rough patch. Yeah, we have the spike in inflation. But it's going to come down, and you know, technology is deflationary, which yes, it is, and 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 everything's going to be copacetic with inflation, and interest rates will fall, the Fed will start cutting, and you know, everything's right. just going to be fine. I mean, that that's the mentality that we're so trained on. Yes. But um, I I just don't think it's going to be that easy. I th I think that there's there are more chapters to be written here, and the Fed's ability to cut rates has more strings attached. Uh, so to speak, right? Uh, you have the potential of seeing a notable drop in the dollar if the Fed aggressively cuts interest rates or embarks on QE or at least stops QT. Well, what happens if that leads to a sharp rise in oil prices, which I think is possible, and and we see a big jump in import prices, and all of a sudden inflation starts going up again in a, in, a, in a, a, a tough economic environment that becomes very stagflationary again. Like there, there's no. The beauty of low inflation created this free lunch for central banks that inflated multiples of everything. And I just don't think that free lunch exists anymore mm. uh, because inflation, again, while it's definitely receded and, and, and definitely falling, and again, well, maybe we'll see a two-handle in inflation by the end of the year, um, it's not staying there. It, it's it's we're not going back to one to two percent inflation on the good side, and 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 I've said this multiple times on 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 Real Vision, just to give perspective. In the twenty years leading into COVID, 
Core goods prices averaged zero. Core, uh, services inflation X energy averaged 2.8%. You merge the two together, you get the volatility in food and energy on the headline, you average about 1% to 2% inflation. So where do we go from here? Services inflation definitely decelerating, probably into next year because we had a lot of apartments that are coming online. But once those apartments are done, there's no new multifamily building going on right now that is, that is starting now. All those projects have been shelved. The only construction that's going on are projects that have already been um, sort of in the queue and have already gotten started. So to me, can we go back to 2.8% services inflation? I'm not sure because wage growth is now 4 to 5%, which is double the 20-year pace leading into COVID. So I think more structurally for the next, call it three to five years, services inflation is going to be more like three to four, maybe on the upper end, where goods prices are not going back to zero in the next three right. to five years because of no more low-cost labor uh, around the world, particularly out of China. Just-in-time inventory is, has been uh, permanently altered post-COVID. Yes. Um, you have all this onshoring and government spending that is just, yeah, it's nice to build more chips here, but it's just going to raise the cost of manufacturing and doing business. So we're not going back to zero. And if we go back to just 2%, you combine the two, you combine 4% services, and you're going to have 3 to 4% type inflation, depending on where food and energy prices go. Yeah, very well said. And to stress this broader point, because I think it's so important when you give this broader context here, uh, if you're a 50-something grizzled Wall Street veteran, 30 years on the street, you've never seen this before. That's right. And you know, to your point earlier about these 40 years of declining interest rates, you know, we try to figure out, we get the question all the time, and we have client money that we get to decide, okay, if we're going to buy bonds, where do we go? And, you know, you have the people that are analyzing the U.S. economy and saying, okay, we're going into recession, uh, inflation's moderating, we got to buy the 10-year, we got to take duration risk, and because it's worth it. And, and I still think that that is thinking sort of the way that things used to be. Right. And I'm much more comfortable buying two-year treasuries thinking that the Fed's almost done. And that to me, there's a much easier call. Like I can, I can, I can agree. I can understand those calls for the 10 year. Oh yeah. We're going to go back to three because we're going into recession and, and, and inflation is deflating, but we're coming out of the greatest financial bubble in the history of financial markets, that being in sovereign bonds, which was epitomized by negative interest rate policy. So I have much less confidence in figuring out where 10-year yield should go from here. Because I can argue that the 10-year, and before it got over four, when it was three and a half, three and three quarters, I was saying the same thing. I can argue it goes to four, four and a half. And of course, we're now at 405. And not for good reason. It's because, um, not because growth is accelerating, but because inflation remains sticky. Or we're going to wake up one morning and the Bank of Japan is going to widen yield curve control, which I think is a possibility in July or in the meeting thereafter, particularly after the much hotter than expected wage data that came out overnight in Japan, which many people missed. And how's it going to go with the European Central Bank as they continue to raise interest rates, as they continue to do QT? I mean, look what's happened to the gilt market. Not only are they aggressively now raising interest rates, they're outright, outright selling gilts. So mm -hmm. yields in the UK are at the highest level since 07, 08. And we were already that basically there in the short end here. So why can't the 10-year in the U.S. go to 
uh, under that scenario. It right. easily can. So I guess the point is, is that the 40-year decline in interest rates is over. And now we're going to see where it goes from here. And uh, again, to my point, I just don't see a scenario where the, it's just too easy to say, okay, U.S. economy is going to recession. The 10 years is going back to two and a half to three. And yeah. U.S. economy is going to recession. The Fed's just going to cut to zero and we're going to do QE. That's the old playbook. Right. You need to throw out that playbook because it doesn't work anymore, I believe. You're so well said and passionately said at that. I want to talk a little bit about something here, which is this disconnect uh, that Andreas Steno Larson is pointing to uh, in a clip. Talk to me about this disconnect between what we're seeing in survey data uh, and versus what's actually occurring on the ground in terms of consumer spending. Let's take a look at that clip. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people, including myself, have been wrong-footed by surveys over the past year here is that surveys tend to send a wrong signal when inflation is high. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, let's take the consumer confidence survey, the Michigan University survey, and show it versus the actual consumption in the economy. Uh, we have a chart on that. And as you can see, there is basically a growing discrepancy between the pessimism in the survey among consumers and the actual consumption in the economy. So why is that? Why does that make sense in a high inflation environment? Well, the reason why consumer confidence is low is due to, it's basically driven by high prices, right? So it also sends a signal that the average consumer expects prices to increase. And therefore, it is also sort of an embedded expectation that it is very costly to wait with the purchase. Uh, and Therefore, you can have this extreme pessimism while still having uh, elevated consumption at the same time, because the survey essentially hints that it is costly waiting, therefore consume now instead of tomorrow. So Andreas Stenos Larsen on Real Vision yesterday, July 6th, uh, you have this kind of conflict between the extreme pessimism and elevated consumption. What do you make of it, Peter? Well, the, the elevated consumption, um, you know, on a real basis, has has grown very little, um, and and I think we have to distill where the money is being spent. So money is being spent on travel and leisure and hospitality and food and and beauty uh, and drugstores, but it's not being spent on electronics and furniture and jewelry and and other sort of hard goods that uh, people spent a lot of money on uh, during COVID. Uh, people are spending more money on buying cars, but that's because inventories are normalizing. But auto sales are obviously a big ticket item, and they're still trending well below uh, the 17 million rate that we saw before. So, And also, it sort of gets to sometimes in moments, how people feel doesn't necessarily translate into how they spend. Uh, so, And, and also, it, it's, it, it, there, there's quite a differentiation right now with um, income differentials. Uh, you, Levi Strauss reported earnings yesterday and they specifically said, and we heard this many times with retail earnings, that they're getting more spent from people who are making more than $100,000 and those making less are being much more discriminating and focused on value brands. Um, so it's important, I think, to sort of further dissect right. uh, the, those two lines on that chart.
Well, Peter, here, here are some numbers that you know very well. I'm looking right now, just reading off my Bloomberg terminal. Uh, S&P 500, year-to-date, up 15.5%. Uh, NASDAQ Composite, year-to-date, uh, up 31, 30, call it 32%. Uh, NASDAQ 100, up nearly 39% year-to-date. We are living in an economy where we have a very divergent path for folks who are earning wages versus folks who are getting capital appreciation. And by the way, they're doing well on their bonds as well. Yes. Uh, so that actually has also been a, a help to the consumer or those that actually have savings and can benefit from the rise uh, in interest rates. That, that's definitely been a help. So, you know, people are doing the analysis of, okay, there's been much less uh, in tax refunds and the consumer is getting hit by a cut, <laughs> excuse me, in the SNAP um, benefits right. and uh, they're going to have to start paying back their student debt. Uh, right. That's sort of one side of, of the headwinds. But yeah, the tailwind is uh, if you have savings and you have money in the markets, uh, you, you seem to be doing better. On the flip side, though, uh, the labor market has been stronger with blue-collar workers, and it's been the white-collar work, particularly in technology, that has actually been much more vulnerable with their job. So, Peter, I've got a, a question on exactly this. That I just want to yeah. throw in there because it's exactly to the point you were making. This one comes just from Adrian Day from the Real Vision website. Can you talk about the consumer, particularly at the lower half, of income and particularly credit card and other debt defaults, talking about the pain that folks in the labor market experiencing right now at the lower end of the income spectrum. So when you going going through a lot of earnings releases, uh, particularly the last month with retail, uh, it was clear that uh, a lot of retailers, whether you were family dollar, dollar general, dollar tree, uh, or you were, or again, Levi Strauss or uh, other um, type retailers, they, they saw a clear differentiation in consumers. And the lower end is really focused on just paying for non-discretionary items. And they're, they've cut back dramatically on discretionary items. But even those making north of 100 grand uh, have, are still being, are, are being more careful with how they spend. Uh, it was you know, Walmart and Costco and, and, and others talked about how they're seeing more higher income Consumers, but we, we've had it. We've had almost a twenty percent rise in the cost of living since right before COVID, since right. February twenty twenty, right. and everyone sees it. So whether you're making more money in your savings account or in the stock market or in your wages, you, you're still conscious of uh, things are more expensive now. Uh, also, I've spent a lot of money on these things over the past couple of years. I don't need to repeat that. I'd rather go on vacation or go out to dinner. Uh, so I think there's definitely been, when you get sticker shock in a lot of different things, and it's not just sticker shock on a house or a car, it's sticker shock at the supermarket. Sure Anybody is. Shops, whether you're higher end or lower end, you're going you're gonna to see it and you're going to respond to it. Absolutely. And of course, people at the lower end of the income spectrum spend a much greater percentage uh, of their earnings. Uh, here's a question that comes to us uh, from Sandeep Gupta, and it's a good one. With yields rising again, are we going to see an SVB-like event? He's referring, of course, to Silicon Valley Bank, some of the instability we saw, particularly in the regional banking sector earlier this year in May. Well, the, the Fed's bond term funding program probably lessens the possibility of another SVB, but with the further bleed that it will create with bank deposits, uh, you are likely going to see failures, which on top of now we're just, I think, beginning a credit cycle, which is right now at least initially manifesting itself in commercial real estate, where small, medium-sized businesses are sort of overweight, we can say, 
as about two thirds of uh, commercial real estate lending comes from small, medium-sized businesses. So right. uh, there's definitely going to be more pain in the banking sector. I mean, each tick higher, call it, in the two-year yield uh, means that more money is leaving these banks and it's going into the money market. So as they continue to bleed deposits, uh, that creates more and more strain uh, on their on their balance sheet because it's a liability uh, of theirs that, that's sort of leaving. But also, again, uh, on the cusp of a, a credit cycle, that um, is going to create its own problems. That uh, again, any 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 bank that has a loan that's coming due, uh, they are in workout discussions uh, with their clients. Yeah, Peter, we've got time for one more question, real quick, because we're running out of time here. But it's a good one from Daniel Davies, and I'm curious to hear your view on it. This comes to us from YouTube. How does the government continue to finance itself over time with much higher average rates? Great question. Yes, and it's something that we've all been watching. Uh, and it was back in the 1980s when people were crowing about the rising U.S. debts and deficits. Uh, but because the cost of financing was just on this, as we said earlier, 40-year trajectory down, uh, it didn't really matter. Now, I think that it does begin to matter and that um, the debts and deficits are getting to a point where it's harder and harder to ignore and it's getting more and more expensive to finance. At the same time, we're in this sort of interesting dynamic where uh, the banks are no longer loading up on treasuries. The Fed is essentially selling treasuries. Foreign central banks are no longer buying uh, treasuries. And you know, wh where is that sort of clearing price when it comes to financing what is right now a 7% budget deficit as a percent of GDP, even before the recession has begun, whereas historically it bottoms at 5 to 10% of a deficit at the depths of a recession, you know, there is a lot of supply coming our way. And while U.S. Treasury will sell this paper, at, at what price is going to be a key question. And, and right. another reason why uh, interest rates can continue to float higher. And another reason why I'm just not confident, confident taking duration risk in this kind of a market for all these reasons. Peter, this has been a spectacular conversation. Uh, you talked to the specific data points out this week. Uh, and folded it in with the broader macro context, which is so difficult, I think, for people to grasp. We really appreciate you joining us. Really wonderful talk. Thanks, Ash. Good to be here. Thanks so much for watching or listening to Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back on Monday. But before we wrap up here, here's a special announcement from Rao. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to break the news. They will be running a five-day crypto gathering special starting on July 10th. These are always really special events. The big question we're seeking to answer in this special week of programming is, is it game on? We'll be bringing, as ever, the best guests into the space to pick their brains, to find out whether the bull market is really on, and if so, how to position for it. So I'll be kicking off on Monday with my own deep dive analysis on the crypto macro framework and where I think we are. And then as we go throughout the week, we'll bring on experts in technical analysis, on-chain analysis. We'll have fund managers to ask them how they're positioning because that's really important because those guys are all over the space. We'll also be looking deeply into the um, Web3 and NFT markets. I know there's been some pain in that space. We'll understand if there's opportunity here too. Anyway, there's going to be a ton of stuff. We're also going to be doing daily Twitter spaces, a special DGEN happy hour, pro crypto technical trader, and probably a bunch of other stuff too. We want to cover everything give you all the information you need and have a lot of fun doing it. Basically, I kind of think of this as like a mini Glastonbury Festival, stuff going on everywhere. 
And I think of it as blasphemy because I'm annoyed that I missed it this year. It's the world's best music festival. Anyway, stay updated. We just need your email, realvision.com forward slash gathering. And I'll see you on Monday. And let's figure out where we're really going. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.